Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Does it seem as though we're tired all the time? In a nation where people value long hours of hard work, guzzle more than 100 million cups of coffee a day, and watch television obsessively, sleep has taken a backseat. Average nightly sleep duration has fallen from approximately 9 hours in 1910 to 7 hours in 2002, and it's even less today. Many people often sleep no more than 5-6 to six hours a night, even though studies show that we need between 7-8 and eight hours for optimal health and performance. According to the Institute of Medicine, between 50 and 70 million U.S. adults have a sleep disorder, and this is an underestimation as many more go undiagnosed. Even worse, an estimated 20% of the population regularly experiences fits of irresistible daytime sleepiness. Today we're talking sleep, why it's so important to our health, and the warning signs you should look out for as a result of not getting enough of it. I'm your host, Dr. Shamar Charles, and you're listening to Hard Work. get enough of it, but we sure as heck shortchange ourselves of it on a regular basis, and it may be affecting our health in ways we don't even realize. To help break this down, we have with us world-renowned sleep expert Dr. Azizi Saishis, assistant professor at NYU Langone Health, chair for the American Academy of Sleep Medicine Young Investigator Research Forum, and one of South Press's top 100 inspiring black scientists in America. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Charles, for having me. The medical community all but acknowledges that sleep is the fifth vital sign, and more and more we're learning how vital it is to our health. But there is some mixed messaging about how much sleep we need, especially when we're kids and when we're adults. How many hours do we need, and what's the importance of hitting this magic number? I think sleep is important, and I know you said that it's the fifth. Many of us would think that it's actually fundamental. They actually consider sleep to be the primordial. Um, health behavior and activity. And there have been several studies that have shown why this is so. Why? Because when you look at the other health behaviors such as um, diet, physical activity, stress management, that when you look at those, all of those operate under what we call the circadian rhythm, your circadian biology, which is a 24-hour period. And you spend about a third of that. You should actually spend about a third eight hours or so to actually confer the health benefits that you need um, from sleep. Um, So typically, um, if you look at the human being across the lifespan from from being an infant all the way to the elderly, that um, at each different stage of one's life, you actually require a certain amount of sleep. So as you're younger, you sleep more. And as you older, you don't sleep as much. That doesn't necessarily mean that you don't need sleep. In fact, what we recommend, folks 18 years and above should get about seven to eight hours of sleep per night, but infants may actually sleep far more, 14, 15 hours. And around the age of about two to three years old, you can see a diminishing in the amount of sleep needed to about you know, 11, 13 hours, and 
in as toddlers, they need more. Um, teenagers, this is where, this is the one group, <clears throat> um, excuse me, that um, it, it's very controversial. Why? Um, because um, teenagers are literally, you know, um, adults, um, but less developed brains. And I hope I don't get in trouble with folks um, for saying that, but literally biologically, their bodies may look like an adult, but their brains are still developing, particularly their prefrontal cortex, which is an area of the brain, which is at the most, you know, at the front of someone's brain, which is responsible for cognition, higher executive tasks, such as judgments and insights. And so those areas are still developing, which is why they oftentimes say teenagers still make silly mistakes because that particular part of the brain is not fully well developed. And in order to facilitate full development of that component of the brain, you need more sleep. So they actually need about 10 hours of sleep, but we know controversially that kids, teenagers don't actually get enough sleep because of a whole host of life demands in terms of schooling and extracurricular activities, as well as their own volition um, of not actually getting and you know getting enough sleep where they might be on their phones or mobile devices of some sort. So by and large, adults seven to eight hours, teenagers, toddlers, they need more, 10, 11 hours, infants, they need more 13, 14, 15 hours. Azizi, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I don't think children, teens, adults, I don't think any of the three are getting the required amount of sleep um, that you're suggesting, at least based on your numbers. We all have those two or three friends that constantly text throughout the night on our group chat. Sometimes, admittedly, that friend is us. Are we exhibiting unhealthy behavior by not sleeping? And does sleeping during the day give us the same health benefits as sleeping at night? That's a really, you know, two fantastic questions. Um, so I agree with you. Um, and there was a recent poll um, that was released in 2020, the beginning of 2020 by the National Sleep Foundation. And they actually found that we really have a sleep crisis whereby a significant portion, if not more than half of the United States are not getting enough sleep. And so, yes, that can have a quite a deleterious, a very harmful impact on people's health, but not just on their health, because what you will see, especially you're saying you're on group chats, and for those of us who are more in the younger demographic, where we may not be at risk for certain chronic health conditions, we may not see the ill effects of poor sleep or sleep deprivation in terms of translating to poor health at this point in time. The unfortunate thing is that by the time you start seeing those effects, it is too late because you've already built up a certain degree of sleep debt. And so it's hard to regain that. And so your question, therefore, is can you actually get back that sleep that you lost through napping? And so I oftentimes say napping can be helpful but it should not be a pattern. Here is why. So I think I had shared earlier that there is, our bodies operate on this 24 hour clock. This clock metaphorically serves as the train tracks of a train. 
If there is significant disruption on that train track, then guess what? The train is gonna derail. The train in this case is the body. So if you have any significant or slight shifts in your circadian rhythm by that, if you sleep at a time when you're not supposed to be sleeping consistently, what happens but at night when you're ready to go to sleep is that your body has not built up enough what we call sleep drive or the need to sleep. So this is where people have induced insomnia symptoms whereby they have difficulties falling asleep, they may have difficulties staying asleep, or they may wake up much earlier involuntarily than they would like to. And so there have been many studies that have linked insomnia to both physical health issues as well as mental health issues, as well as poor quality of life issues. So I'll share with your audience that even though you believe that you can cheat on your sleep, you, it will come rearing its head. It may rear its head sooner or later, but it will. And so you will see that folks may have difficulties performing certain tasks, such as processing information at work. They're oftentimes highly forgetful. Their concentration, um, their attention is poor. Um, their level of hand-eye coordination is disrupted. All these different things that we might take for granted can significantly harm us. You can see this in the increased rates of car and transportation accidents. That is because of sleep deprivation for the most part um, in some cases, um, especially when you have untreated sleep disorders. So for the most part, absolutely key. You must get your sleep. Napping can be helpful, but it should not be a pattern because it actually disrupts your ability to sleep when you want to at night. Inevitably, we're going to have people who argue that they simply cannot get eight hours of sleep. Sometimes work doesn't allow it. Sometimes it's parental responsibilities with the kids or taking care of a sick loved one, etc. If we had to choose between shorter, better quality sleep, so by that I mean completely uninterrupted sleep for a short period of time, or longer but frequently interrupted sleep or poor quality sleep, which would you choose? Does one or the other have a more negative impact on our health? I think that's a fantastic question. And I'm going to disappoint you that I'm not going to give you a, 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 a very discreet answer. The reason why is because it really depends on the individual. Here is why. Um, for some people, they might um, do better with shorter sleep, um, especially if the quality of their sleep is better. However, um, I have not seen that phenotype or profile of that individual. And in many ways, I know some folks um, are trying to do this, and I haven't seen this done very, very well in terms of studies whereby you can manipulate your sleep in such a way where you're only going to sleep for a short period of time, but you're going to really go into a tremendous amount of deep sleep, which would improve the quality. I haven't seen that. I know some folks are talking about sleep hacking as one possibility, but that has not been proven. Um, and to be quite honest, it would really take some significant manipulation to do that. Conversely, um, there are some people for whom um, a longer sleep but interrupted sleep might be better. However, 
um, by interruptions, what you're doing is that you are fragmenting your sleep in a way that you may never feel restful. And so neither of the two are important. What I would highly recommend to folks is I would have them use a sleep diary and really try and figure out what quality and quantity of sleep um, they seem to respond better to. Here's some telltale signs. Do you feel more refreshed after you've slept? Do you feel energetic after you've slept? Do you experience excessive daytime sleepiness after you've rested that night? Those are some telltale signs to see whether or not either of those two has worked. Now, obviously, there are several confounders. Why? Well, could be that particular day might be more stressful. And so it might be hard for you to really appreciate and see whether or not if the previous night's sleep was an effective one. But I think by and large, you know, notwithstanding those confounders, I think it's key that people take a sleep diary, log it over a period of time, and see which of those two would work. But from a professional um, standpoint, I wouldn't recommend either of the two because both have serious disadvantages. I think that answer is going to leave a lot of people scratching their heads as to what to do. But let's kick this over to daylight savings time. It's almost upon us. We'll be getting an hour back, although that may mean less to some of us with our change in schedules as a, re as a result of, of COVID. But how does that extra hour impact our sleep health? So, I mean, so, so <laughs> this particular question has become um, much more controversial over the last month or so. So the, um, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, of which I'm a member, and serve on several um, boards, um, released a statement asking to um, be rid of and abolish daylight savings. Um, and they really um, highlighted a, of several reasons as to why, both from a health perspective, from an economic standpoint, and just arguing the point that it really <clears throat> does not add anything significantly to our quality of life, and particularly many of the intents that it had purported to serve actually are not entirely true. Here's why. Initially, or there's this myth that um, daylight savings was primarily utilized um, to help farmers so that they can get more um, sunlight. Um, in their day so that it would um, give them more time to, to farm and to, to harvest. Um, and that has been proven over and over to not be the case. And so what our academy said was that we're seeing significant health and quality of life consequences as a result of daylight savings. It's as if you are perpetually changing the, um, the human biology's clock at these arbitrary times. And so these constant shifting and reshifting can cause significant delayed as well as advancement of your biology. And it's not just about sleep here. It's about when you have daylight savings, not only does it affect your sleep, as I mentioned, 
but it affects the time that you play, you work, you eat, as well as all the different activities that you would normally partake in. And so this is one area that, um, to be quite honest, um, we need to be more mindful of. If I'll take this opportunity, you mentioned COVID, and it would re be remiss of me not to acknowledge the fact that the fact that many of us are working remotely or working at home, that what we're having is that our lives in many ways have lacked the important time cues and punctuations that help to provide us a solid routine whereby we know when to eat, when to sleep, when to play, when to work. If you speak to many folks, and I know I have fallen prey to this, is that oftentimes you can work for 15 hours a day and not know it. Um, and so you may be sitting for 15 hours, right? That can impact the amount of sleep that you get, not just from a physiological standpoint, because you know, if you're not moving, you can have significant muscle attrition, as well as, um, you know, um, more likely to have back spasms, which can Im impact your sleep. Not just that, but it does not, as I had mentioned earlier, build up that sleep drive and sleep need that you so desperately need to physiologically make you fall asleep. So I think those are some things that, that I think needs to, to, to be acknowledged that though daylight savings is part of who we are um, as, 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 as the United States, but it has caused significant health, economic, and quality of life disruption that perhaps we should consider removing it. I'd also like to add that getting the required amount of sleep is really important for weight loss, right? Can you... Uh, expand on that a little bit for us. You know, it's one of those things, and 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 I can give you a you know very you know solid scientific argument, and some folks have 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 shared this. So I'll just kind of paint this um, in a large picture. So um, in, in terms of of weight gain, um, sleep is important. Here is why. So when it comes to sleep deprivation. Um, there have been many studies that have shown that um, when people are sleep deprived, you have certain hormones that are put out of whack. Um, and so these hormones, there is a hormone that essentially induces your appetite so you know when you need to eat. So it induces hunger. And then there is another hormone that tells you when you're full. What happens when you're sleep deprived is that the hormone that is responsible for saying, hey, I'm hungry, is activated a lot. So you're feeling as if you need to eat more. And then the hormone that says, you know what, I'm full is diminished. So when you look at the economy between those two hormones, you will see that there is a significant net result where you're just always hungry. Here's another thing that studies have found. When you look at those individuals who have an increased appetite, what kind of foods do you think they crave? What do you think? 
What kind of foods do you think they crave? Carbohydrates, sugars. Exactly. 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 So they crave a lot of carbohydrates. They crave a lot of sugars. And many of us who don't know this, when we have kids, you try not to give your kids what before bed? Sugar. Anything too carb oriented, right? Why? Because it spikes the blood glucose level, the blood sugar level very quickly. So you're going to feel energetic. But guess what? That energy is short lived and you drop significantly. And so what happens is that if you go through the cycle of being sleep deprived, you want to stay awake, to, you want to you eat to stay awake. So you eat more carbohydrate. But what happens is you don't stay awake long enough for the body to burn those foods. So then you end up falling asleep, having just consumed a lot of calories. That can increase your weight. So I hope your audience understands this pathway and cycle of sleep deprivation to increase appetite, right, um, through the hormones, which then in some ways um, causes someone to crash, which means that you're packing on all these calories. Now, all of that in many ways reduces your metabolism rate. And so you need your sleep to keep your metabolism rate going so that you can burn those foods. And so if your metabolism rate has been, been basically muted or suppressed, it means, therefore, even though you eat a particular food that you would typically burn off, but if you're sleep deprived, you're not burning it off. So that's the biology behind it. Let me give you another example. Studies have also shown that people who exercise, right? So I just gave you and I, I just basically showed you and explained to the audience the relationship between sleep and eating. I'm going to show you the relationship between sleep and exercise because that's the other health behavior that is typically used in weight loss and weight management. Sleep is inextricably tied to exercise and activity. Studies have shown that sleep deprivation can actually suppress your activity level. So many of us know this. If you're very, very, very sleep deprived, do you feel like you're going to go to a gym? Do you feel like you're going to take a run? Do you feel like you're going to get the most out of it? No. And studies have shown actually that even people who um, um, eat healthily, and who exercise, what they found was that those individuals did not actually get the most or reap the most from eating healthily or exercising because they were sleep deprived. So in many ways, back to the metaphor of sleep and circadian rhythm being that train track. And if there is a slight deviation on that or imperfection on that train track, the human body, in this case, the train can be easily derailed. That is how you find that people who are slim or eat healthily um, and, and exercise actually don't get the most out of their exercise and eating healthily because they are sleep deprived. So let me get this right. 
if I'm waking up in the morning and I'm already sleep deprived, would it make more sense for me to get that extra hour of sleep versus forcing myself to wake up to go out for that run? I, I think so. Or, or you go to bed earlier. I think that would be the, the, um, the better alternative. Because what you don't want to do as well is you don't want to lay in bed when your body says, I am ready to wake up. Because that can create another form of, you know, what we call situational insomnia where you're tossing and turning and you're like, oh, I need to get up, but I don't want to get up. And so your mind starts to race. You start thinking about what you have to do that day, but you're just staying in bed because you're like, you know what? I need to get that extra sleep. And so what I think is preferred is you would go to bed earlier so that you can get the allotted amount of time. And so, yes, even though, you know, exercise physiologists have said that it's better to exercise in the morning. I think that really depends on the individual because I think everything is personalized. Why? Some of us are morning folks. Some of us are evening folks. And some of us are kind of in between. And so the work that we're trying to do at NYU is essentially trying to find out based on people's circadian profile, morning person, evening person, or in between, Let's try and find out what would work best for you. Um, and I think this is where we're learning a lot more um, to try and understand human behavior, human physiology, and how that impacts quality of life, wellness, and health. Let me switch gears a bit and talk about snoring. We've heard that it may be a warning sign for a bigger health problem like sleep apnea and how it can form a chasm in relationships, sometimes even forcing two partners to sleep in separate rooms. We also sort of know it colloquially as um, sort of the universal sign of being tired. How big of a problem is it? It's huge. It's absolutely huge. I mean, I, I chuckle a little because, you know, what you described sounds very similar to what we hear patients and our participants in many of our clinical trials say, you know, when we bring over a partner and we're trying to impress upon them that their snoring might be a sign of something more onerous or ominous. Um, typically, the person who has a condition is oblivious to this fact but the partners are literally smiling and saying, thank you, thank you for bringing this up because it's ruined our relationship. It's ruined our sex life. It's ruined everything. Um, and, and so it's absolutely important. So if people do snore, we're not saying that it's uh, a, a, a diagnostic per se, um, but what we would highly recommend is that if someone snores, and you observe them in a way that it seems as if that they might be gasping for air or they seem as if they're not breathing, that's typically a sign of some sleep disordered breathing such as sleep apnea. And so um, the prevalence of sleep apnea is quite high. Um, it's estimated that um, 70 to 80 million Americans are at risk for sleep apnea and or insomnia. We believe that estimate is suppressed because so many people suffer 
with these symptoms, but they never actually bring it to their healthcare provider and seek the necessary assessment to do so. Now they have these um, you know, wearable technologies that you can actually check your pulse oxygen level, um, your blood oxygen level rather, during um, sleep. And if there is significant dipping in your um, blood oxygen level um, during those bouts of snoring, it may be a warning sign that you're not getting enough oxygen, you're not getting enough airflow. And so sleep apnea is either partial or full blockage of air when you are sleeping. And so as a way of making the body get enough oxygen, it reflexively kicks the person awake. And so this can happen repeatedly throughout the given night. And so this constant um, lack of oxygen and reflexively waking up can cause significant sleep deprivation and sleep fragmentation. It is also linked to elevated levels of blood pressure. Typically, blood pressure dips at night. And so if someone's blood pressure stays constant throughout the night because they are in this constant state of alarm in having the body try to adjust to this choking experience, that can lead to hypertension. This is similarly evidenced in diabetes where glucose levels are increased. Um, and as well, it's linked to dementia. Um, and so sleep is very critical in cleaning out um, certain bio waste, um, particularly in the brain, um, through a process called glymphatic system. And it's a lot, it's a big term, but essentially what happens is that your brain can only clean itself while you are asleep. Unlike the other organs, the other organs could clean themselves during the day, though it is highly optimized when we are asleep, but the brain only can do that while asleep. And so if the, you don't sleep enough, whether through some sleep deprivation caused by volitionally not sleeping enough or through sleep apnea, which we just described, um, where you have snoring, then you might be at increased risk for dementia. As you mentioned, sleep apnea puts people at higher risk of type 2 diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, and a slew of other health, health illnesses. Ironically, these health conditions are more commonly seen in black and brown populations. You were recently featured in Neolife in a piece authored by Elizabeth Preston, where she discussed how you use sleep to study health inequalities. Can you discuss how you combine technology and precision medicine to help uh, combat health disparities? You know, Dr. Charles, I mean, I could, this is a topic that I know you and I care so deeply about. You know, I think it's rare to have men of color in the space of healthcare and medicine that it's our imperative and it's our duty to shed and to spotlight some of the injustices that we see in healthcare. And injustice doesn't just occur at the level of healthcare delivery but it has to do with trying to understand and create the best solutions for people. And so my attempt to include technology is really a way to one, acknowledge the significant systemic issues that is fraught 
in our healthcare system, such as the lack of access, the lack of quality care, the lack of choice, all these are significant pillars to having a value-based healthcare system. And so what we try to do um, and what we're currently working on is we recognize that we can't follow this one-size-fits-all approach. This one-size-fits-all approach takes what I consider this warehouse model. I was just chatting with a colleague and he was speaking to a physician who is in charge of a clinic. And they were basically saying that, you know, we need to reach out to black and brown folks. Not sure if technology is the best way, but we just have to because we think uh, we need to create this bridge. It's not just using technology, it's how you use technology. So what we're doing um, in our lab and in our smart hub um, at NYU is to say, let's use the best instruments at our disposal, but let's use instruments that are off the counter. They're not too expensive. And many cases, we um, you know, provide these solutions. So for example, uh, in terms of tracking someone's sleep, we provide something similar to a Fitbit as well as an Apple Watch, um, much higher grade. Um, so that we can really track people's sleep. We're also tracking how that is connected to someone's blood pressure so we can monitor them remotely. And then we can track how it is you know, um, affecting on, um, their blood glucose levels and other clinical vitals. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a healthcare system that, is, that, that, that you know, removes or deconstructs this warehouse approach and make healthcare occur at the home. When you go to the physician or your provider, you only spend 15 minutes and you don't probably see that person for another three to six months. So what happens after that? What happens in between those visits? A lot. However, our healthcare system is not equipped to provide care and management of disease as well as wellness during those times. So what we're trying to do is to create solutions through what we call IoT, Internet of Things, through wearables, connecting it with smart homes, smart devices, and using the best of data science and technology through cloud computing so that we might be able to, one, ingest all of those data from these different devices in real time so that we can learn someone's biology and their behaviors and see how their behaviors and lifestyle and biology impacts you know, um, certain clinical outcomes. But then we're also trying to use really innovative solutions such as brain hacking. I know, you know that term got a bad rap during our last election where people used it as a way of inducing um, people's votes but so what we said is that we want, and there's a group called AI for Good. We want to use artificial intelligence, AI for good. So let's use those solutions to what? Improve adherence to lifestyle and lifestyle behaviors and wellness. And so this is kind of what we're doing, using the best of the technologies at our disposal, engaging black and brown communities in a way in which it's authentic. We're capturing um, their needs, addressing significant bottlenecks of care that they oftentimes face, and as well as providing real-time adaptive insights 
whereby we can provide this wrap around support. It's not just creating a new healthcare system, no, you know, Shamard, Dr. Charles, it's, it's not just that. It's, it's creating a new paradigm. So one of the things COVID has taught us, and I know you and I have discussed this at length, is that COVID helped to magnify the many racial ethnic injustices in our public health and population health system. And so what we're trying to do, and we've been doing this work before COVID, is to leverage, and I don't want to say we're taking advantage of COVID, but we're leveraging the attention of health systems as well as the health tech industry in Silicon Valley, as well as the Northeast Corridor Valley. And we're trying to say, hey, here's an opportunity. We're talking about uninsured folks. We can create a new system, a new system whereby we're not trying to optimize a healthcare system because guess what? Even if you have all the bells and whistles, if these people still don't have coverage, they're still not going to benefit. So let's create a new system, a new system that's economical, that we can provide general, basic, and to certain, in certain cases, optimized care so that people can prevent disease, especially those people who are at risk, but those diseases haven't manifested, particularly among black and brown folks. And for those people who suffer from chronic health conditions like type 2 diabetes and hypertension, who don't have the resources to go see a hypertension specialist or someone who can't see an endocrinologist or a nutritionist or any of those folks, we can put that all into a digital solution. And so that's what we're trying to do, um, Shamard. And I hope members of your audience could reach out to me and try and be part of this movement because it's a movement by which we want health care for all. And not just health care for all, but health and wellness for all. Two rapid fire questions to end our segment. Yes, to end our segment. Yes or no, do you believe that these AI-driven and wearable technologies will be made accessible to the marginalized communities that need it most? They have to. And I say yes, they have to. And that's part of my mission. And I know others are working on that as well. And of the few Silicon Valley folks I've been talking to, absolutely, absolutely. What we just need is healthcare as well, healthcare system, not just providers, but payers to pony up and, and, and make this part of this program. I know there are leaders in this space. Oscar Health is doing that. I know Aetna, CVS, they're trying to do that as well, but we, they need to do more. They absolutely need to do more. And my second question is, what is your sleep routine? And do you incorporate any one of your 21 tips to a good night's sleep? <laughs> absolutely. So, you know, again, you know, I, I think I've shared this with you and I've shared this with everyone that the reason why I think at times I am an effective sleep evangelist is because I have issues too. So when I share these things, I don't want to come across from a, 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 what we call an erudite position where I'm like, oh, you know, I'm talking down to people. I'm not talking down to people. When I tell you that I know it's hard to get those seven to eight hours because you have so many life competing, so many competing life issues. I know that. I feel that. 
And so typically I try and get six to seven hours. I should get more, but this is where I try and maximize this so based on your question earlier. It's not ideal, not perfect, but they are one of the things that we're trying to do in our precision and personalized population health approach is to learn new profiles where if you are one of those people where you can only get six to seven hours, what other health behaviors you can do. So that's what I am trying to do um, in my work and I'm doing it um, you know, um, with myself. So in terms of sleep hygiene, I oftentimes say this in summary, prepare to go to bed. Prepare to go to bed and treat sleep as, as if your day began with sleep. Don't see sleep as the last thing that you do. Instead, you're gonna sleep tonight in order for you to do all the wonderful things and exciting things you wanna do tomorrow. Don't see sleep as the last thing because you're always going to shortchange it. And so what I highly recommend that people do is you turn off the lights um, 30 minutes, 45 minutes before because it's important to be in dim light or darkness because you're preparing to go to bed. Try not to get too active um, before bed. No caffeine, none of those things. Um, try and avoid you know, emotionally stressful situations. There are a whole host of things. For your audience who would like to see that, you can go to my website, um, draziziseshas.com. Perhaps you can put that up on your um, you know, podcast, you know, Dr. Charles, so that people can get to see some of the tips that we have coming out um, with regards to, to, to um, you know, um, these 21 tips. And for kids, you know, in full disclosure, um, I've partnered with um, Moshi, um, Sleep and Meditation, um, and it's a wonderful solution for, for kids and families um, where it provides um, bed night stories as well as, um, um, you know, um, mindfulness activities. Um, it's been a fun, you know, been a fantastic partnership with them thus far. Just want to share um, that, you know, um, you know, while NYU supports this, they don't endorse me um, um, sharing this per se. Um, and so I'm not endorsing, you know, Moshe per se, um, but I just wanted to disclose this to you and your audience that, that I am working with them. Thanks so much, Dr. Saishas. I learned a lot today. I feel like a sleep expert. I find that the first and last thing I look at when going to bed and waking up is my phone, so I certainly have some improving to do in regards to maximizing my own sleep health. I just want to add one last point. Many of our listeners have kids or take care of loved ones. We understand that spending that extra hour with them after work or in the morning is time well spent, and we know that you wouldn't trade that for the world. We want to embrace that reality while also encouraging you to find a healthy balance between the two. That's well said. That's well said, Dr. Charles. Thank you so much for the, the opportunity to speak with you and your audience. Final thought. Sleep plays a critical role in our physical and mental health. Making sure that you're getting the recommended amount of sleep each night is important, but so is getting restorative sleep. Quality and quantity both matter. If you've been struggling with sleep, whether you're lying awake waiting for sleep to come or finding yourself waking up multiple times in the middle of the night, there are things you can do to get to the bottom of your sleep woes. Start by making lifestyle changes that are connected to quality sleep. 
Implement a sleep routine that includes creating a restful environment. Personally, I found that charging my phone outside the bedroom particularly helpful. You may also want to set a consistent bedtime, limit nighttime caffeine, watch your alcohol intake, and get regular exercise. If you're still struggling with sleep, or if your sleep problems make you fatigued and distressed, talk to a healthcare professional. In some cases, an underlying sleep disorder or another medical condition, such as anxiety, depression, or sleep apnea, may be playing a role in your sleep issues. The appropriate diagnosis and treatment can help you address the problem and, guess the, and help you get the rest that you need. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Heart Over Hype. Putting this podcast together is a labor of love, so I truly appreciate your listenership. Thank you for listening, and I can't wait for our next conversation. See you next week. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube you know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks that's what our podcast people are the worst brings you with each episode i'm rachel And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.